This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Searchwide Global, the premier executive search firm in the DMO space. Mike Gamble and his team uncover the talent out there that isn't looking, meaning that clients get a far richer candidate pool from which to choose than just placing ads in publications and online. If you're looking for a new opportunity or for the perfect candidate, call them. You can learn more at searchwideglobal.com. And now it's on to our show. Tom Martin is a no-nonsense, straight-talking 30-year veteran of the sales and marketing business who favors stiff drinks, good debate, and helping organizations sell greatly by turning conversations into customers. As an internationally recognized sales and marketing keynote speaker, the founder of Converse Digital and author of the book, The Invisible Sale, Tom marries his two passions, persuasion and technology, to teach organizations how to leverage digital marketing channels to achieve and sustain sales growth, enhanced brand perception, and painlessly prospect for new customers. His book, The Invisible Sale, is available at Amazon, and you can follow him on Twitter at, at Tom Martin or contact him through ConverseDigital.com. Tom Martin, welcome to DMOU. And thank you for having me, my friend. Absolutely. You know, in our pre-episode call, we were chuckling about the moment that I was flying somewhere and your book had just come out and I was digging into it and I was sailing through it and I'm loving it. I get about 60 or 70 pages in and I see my name and I go, what? (laughs) You hadn't bothered to tell me that that I was going to be a case study. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry about that. That's uh, Honestly, uh, it made it even better because if you had told me, I would have been really worried (laughs) and and racing through it, not consuming the book. But the funny thing is, and it really gets us to our first question, the case study that you used was you had somehow found your way to meet and befriend Dave Serino uh, at 2.6 Digital. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in the conversation, he suggested that you and I should talk. And then somewhere in our conversations, I suggested hey, you ought to speak at Destinations International. Mm -hmm. And that gets us to the question. You have been one of, if not the lead voices that have been urging us all to use propinquity. Now, that is not a word that most of us know. So what is propinquity and why should we care? Well, propinquity is basically, it's the number one predictive variable of relationship formation between any two people. And the official definition is the greater the physical, psychological, or we always add virtual proximity between people, uh, the more likely they will form uh, a relationship, a friendship, a business relationship, get married, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason you care about it is because if you can find ways to improve uh, your propinquity against, for instance, a person who you're trying to sell something to, or a podcaster who you're trying to get on their podcast, or a media outfit where you want to publish on their website or in their media, if you could find a way to increase your propinquity against that person or persons, more than likely, you're going to have a much better chance of developing a relationship with them that will then ultimately allow you to achieve whatever goal it is you're trying to achieve. And one of the other uh, examples that you used in the book was that studies have shown that when college kids are in a dormitory setting, that the kids on one hall tend to be better friends than they are with people on the second floor or the fourth floor, except for the case of those who live near stairwells 
who would go vertical in some of their friendships where people in the middle of the hall wouldn't. I just thought that was fascinating. And it, it really underscores what you're talking about is you need that ability and in a college setting that is physical to make a connection that could go anywhere in the sales process ultimately, right? More so what I found most fascinating, the reason I use that one in my book, I tend to use it in my talks, it's called the Westgate study. It was done back in the 50s because the dormitory in question was called the Westgate, it was at MIT. And it was a pretty small dorm. There were only, I think, maybe 20 or 30 rooms. So there's already a great deal of propinquity and proximity right there. But even just that little itty bitty bit more, you know, the person up against the stairwell, like versus the middle of the floor was enough to be statistically relevant and valid in showing that it led to an increased prediction that it would form a friendship. So to me, that's just amazing that even that little bit of extra proximity and propinquity gives you an edge in whatever it is you're trying to do. In this case, you know, find a BFF in college, or maybe it's close a deal with a big corporation. You're trying to lure their meeting to your destination, et cetera. Like just even a little bit can really make a big difference. Well, and as you say in the book, propinquity can turn a cold call into a warm call because cold calls, long a staple of our industry and everybody else's, is a sensational waste of time most of the time. How can DMO sales pros prospect smarter with a higher ROI? My counsel would be really, I think there's two core things. Uh, number one is you should never sell to a stranger. Uh, your mom told you that when you were a kid and you should never talk to a stranger. And <laughs> right. In the sales world, that's really, really true, especially nowadays. Didn't always, you know, 30 years when, when I got into this business, that wasn't always true. Yeah. But with today, with the digital world that we live in, even if your prospects aren't maybe big users of social media, et cetera, it's almost impossible to escape the web in terms of its ability to suck up information about you and what you do and where you work, et cetera. And then basically it's all unstructured, but it's there. And so I, I would say as a DMO salesperson or really any salesperson, you should never ever call a stranger. You should be, before you ever reach out to somebody, you should be using or you know deploying a little what I call social reconnaissance or social recon, uh, where you're going out and you're really learning how to take all that unstructured data that's floating around the web and use it to build a really pretty powerful and incredibly detailed dossier on that person whom you're trying to reach. You know, I would say use things like marketing automation and uh, website tracking on your websites so that you can begin to track their behaviors when they do engage with like your emails or your website. Uh, because what you're seeing is invisible buying signals. Uh, you know, I can open up my marketing automation tool and if I, let's say I get an inbound uh, lead from somebody, you know, I can go back and see every single page they've been on. I can see when they were on it, how long they were on it, what pathway they followed. And what that does is that helps me understand what I think this individual might want to talk about, what might interest them. It helps me prepare my sales call to know what kind of case studies I might want to be prepared to show, uh, what kind of clients I might want to talk about, et cetera. And it really gives you an incredible edge when you finally do get that call. But it's all about doing your homework first. And then the second thing I would say is that when you do finally get that opportunity to have a call with someone, really focus on what we here call selling greatly. And that is uh, really being relationship first versus transaction first. When we teach salespeople how to, how to sell better here, we're always teaching them how to create trust, empathy, relationships, like really build the foundation first. The transactions will follow. And by doing that, you basically stick out because you're very unlike pretty much every other salesman in the world. But the other thing is you're really building a foundation where that person will begin to open up a little bit and begin to tell you things they wouldn't traditionally or normally tell a salesperson. 
uh, because they don't want that salesperson to get the edge or you know get the power in the in the negotiation. But because you've taken the time to build a relationship, you've known a lot about them, you've established empathy, trust, connectivity, they just tend to open up a little bit more, right? And yeah. so you you end up having a far better discussion, and it it really helps you prepare a far better proposal, follow up, et cetera, which I have found over the last 10, 15 years that I've been using this process, that tends to translate to a much, much higher conversion rate than a person who's doing cold calling or thinking very transactionally or thinks that sales is a numbers game and all of this sort of traditional hoopla that you've been taught for the last 50 years in the sales world. So getting back to Dave Serino, we had him on a year or so ago, and I know that both of you believe that one of the tactics that can be used is email. And as Dave said, he goes, I know it sounds old school and I know it sounds, you know, like it's over. Honestly, he goes, that's the one tool in the quiver. It's so trackable. And, you know, DMOs, when they use it for sales or for any kind of marketing, you want to do two or three different offers, hoping that one of them will Mm -hmm. capture the, uh, the person's attention. You know, Dave says, as you have said, you know, you make sure that one of them is a value proposition one of them is about an experience and one of them is about something else. By going in and seeing which one they clicked on, now you know how to open that conversation once you've gotten the relationship established. You know, this is somebody who's looking for value. I know just mm-hmm. the properties or I know just the place to suggest to them when we finally do get to that point in our relationship. Absolutely. I, you know, I think the two greatest uses of email for salespeople is, is one, from a nurturing standpoint, it allows you to be one too many but in a way that feels one-to-one. My most efficient email list is, hey, thought you'd find this interesting. That's what I call the list in my database. It's not one list, it's people who have been tagged virtual ways. So if, if I would find something about a particular passion point or something really salient and relevant to a set of people that I'm prospecting, I have a simple little template that I just send out of our CRM that says, hey, I thought you'd find this interesting. I highlight what it is, why I think they'd find it relevant. And I only send it to the segment of people for whom it truly is appropriate. Nobody ever unsubscribes from that list. Click and, and read numbers through the roof. Mm-hmm. And again, each time they do it, it's given me you know, an invisible buying signal that I can read and store and refer back to. And then the second thing with email, kind of going a little bit further than what Dave was saying, is be using it from a behavioral segmentation standpoint. Um, for instance, we're getting ready to launch a campaign right after the new year for one of our clients. They have a database of about, I don't know, I think it's like 1,600 people, prospects, and they really don't know squat about them. But the salespeople are saying, hey, look, if I go and call on all these 1,600 people and I go through the standard cold call reach out, you know, it's going to take me a month yeah. to really start to find the people I need to, you know, the needles in the haystack, so, so to speak, and begin to close deals. Uh, so we're going to pass all these people through a, a four-phase, eight-week behavioral segmentation email program, not unlike what Dave was talking about. And when it's done, we'll be able to hand those 1,600 people back rank ordered from most likely to buy to least likely to buy and tell them exactly all those things. What did they click on? What do they want to buy? And we'll even be able to segment it like, hey, here's hot to trot. Call these people first. Here's the people that are somewhat interested. Don't even bother with these people at the bottom because they've done nothing to tell us that they are remotely interested in what you're selling. Well, to a salesperson, that's huge, right? Oh, yeah. You just gave them a true lead. 
not a BS marketing qualified lead. You've given them an incredibly well-qualified lead, marrying a little social recon data with that to help them know how to start conversations, et cetera. And you've given them, a, I call it, you know, it's kind of the leads that sales can't live without, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're the salespeople, you're, you're loving it. If you're the marketing people, you're loving it because your salespeople love you for doing it for them. And I really think that is the model for the future is let marketing handle much more of that prospecting than cold calling with content, if you will. So that when you send a lead over to your sales force, you throw it over the wall, the sales team is like, holy crap, this is incredible. I know everything I need to know to do a really well-planned call and outreach to this uh, person. And if you give a well-trained salesperson really good data and intel like that, the outcome's usually successful. Yeah. Very seldom have I ever seen it fail. So there's email and there's also old school, traditional, phone call, in-person, trade show, sales blitzes, all that stuff. And the past two years really has sped the, the virtualization of our world. There are still those among us, and I shouldn't say old school, because there are still some rookies that have been taught or have read you know, old school philosophies about sales. And they, they're terrified that they're going to lose the personal touch that they believe is critical to make this all work. But you know, we're seeing a number of DMOs that are reporting 2020 and 2021 as record-breaking sales years in the middle of a pandemic. They're breaking records because they didn't stop and they used Zoom to stay in touch and other social mediums. Talk to us about the art of social selling in a post-pandemic world. I don't think it's really that much different, frankly, than a pre-pandemic or pandemic world. Okay. Yeah. When you hear social selling, I think historically and even today, most people tend to define that as, oh, well, we, we taught our salespeople how to use Twitter and LinkedIn and social media as sales tools. And I've never really believed that was a good definition. When we talk about social selling or when we teach it to folks, the first thing we tell them is, look, social selling is, is very simple. Let me help you understand what it means. You focus a whole lot more on that first word, social, and a whole lot less on that word selling. And I don't mean social as a platform. I mean social as are you a social person? Mm -hmm. Are you trying to communicate with people? Are you trying to build relationships with people? Are you trying to show interest in people? Like that's what it's all about. And actually, again, I find in the digital world, it's somewhat easier, frankly. I can stay aware of what's going on in people's lives through digital tools far better than I can through phone calls and face-to-face right. -face meetings, et cetera, right? I mean, it's just so much easier, especially if that person's a, an avid user of social media platforms. Uh, I can see what's happening in their world. I can see if they got a promotion. I can see if they moved companies. I can see if their kid just went to college. Like there are just so much information that I can see that I can use to stay in touch and, and do well. And I guess because I've always, ever since I founded Converse Digital, I've always use social selling and virtual selling techniques. For whatever reason, we really have never had a lot of clients here in New Orleans. Most of our clients tend to be from outside of New Orleans and outside of the state of Louisiana, just for whatever reason. Well, I shouldn't say forever reason. Part of that's driven by my Hurricane Katrina experience in my prior agency. Yeah, like, right. But that's uh, a whole different podcast. So I've always built like using uh, social media and virtual happy hours and, and using video calls and, and all those things. And the thing is, is if you can really establish that bond with people, uh, yeah. Does it help to go break bread with them and have a cocktail? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything that is better than sitting across the table from someone having a cocktail or having dinner and having a shared experience 
an experience that can encode a memory, preferably a good one that you can talk about later because inevitably, you know, funny things happen or whatever. But in lieu of that, you can accomplish so much of that through just really smart use of social, of text, of email, of video. And actually just, I was sitting through a research presentation by a neurologist, neuroscientist uh, just the other day, and they were testing effectiveness basically of, you know, phone, hybrid, virtual against one another and blew me away. Virtual tended to be the most effective from a neuroscience, like encoding of message, memorization of message, recall of message. The virtual was doing way better than even the face-to-face and most, and most certainly it continually outperformed hybrid, hmm. uh, which I found to be fascinating, right? Because we always think, oh, face-to-face. Yeah. Now you've got to have the correct uh, sales deck, because the sales deck that works in the boardroom doesn't work in the Zoom room. You have to build it completely differently. Right. The same presentation style that works in the boardroom does not work in the Zoom room. And, and all of that did come out in their science as well. But it really can be effective, but you just have to change your game to be able to be effective in that medium. And it is just different. But it's not that hard to change. It's not that hard to build a different deck. You just have to build it. And then you have it. So yeah. uh, those people, I think, are just scared because they've never done it. But it's funny, like those of us who have been doing it for the last decade, even pre-pandemic, you know, pandemic, to us, I think it's just kind of second nature. I know it's happened to you. We've talked about it before where you go to a conference and you see somebody and you're giving them a big bear hug. And people are like, wow, they even know you guys knew each other. And you're like, well, actually, we, we've just met in person for the first time right here. Yeah. Sure. But to everyone around you, you appear as though you were like college buds yeah. from 20 years yeah. ago. But it's because you were able to build that really strong you know, emotional relationship with one another that, you know, granted you didn't do it face to face, but, but you had built that. Right. And when people see that, I think that helps them realize, okay, wait, you really can do there, this works. I just have to change how I do it and not be afraid of it and embrace it. Yeah. And you know, about midway through this odyssey, I remember hearing some pundits and I can't remember where, and I hate that when I can't give attribution, but they were saying that the reason that zoom works so well, is that we already had these relationships in place and now we're substituting Zoom to keep in touch, but that Zoom will be found in a couple of years to not be as good at finding new friends, new clients, new associates, new relationships. And as this thing just keeps pounding on with no end in sight, I I almost think back to those moments and thinking, you know, were they being apologists for the old way? And are we really at a place? Because, yeah, you know, Destinations International's annual meeting in July was it was a really interesting moment in time because it was a week before Delta reared its head. And so we were primarily maskless. We were hugging. <laughs> you know, we were packed like sardines in some places. And according to the tracebacks, only one person was COVID uh, positive in the following week. So we did it right, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think about, you know, will we be in 2026 when maybe I don't want somebody to give me a bear hug because I don't know where you've been. Are we going to really rely on the social and the Zoom and the technology more than face-to-face? I think you absolutely are not going to see the Zoom and the technology go away, period. Yeah. A, you said people are finding out that it can be just, if not more effective. It lowers cost. It improves your ability to, uh, from an efficiency standpoint, obviously. I can make five, six Zoom presentations a day in multiple markets around the country. 
I can't do that if I got to get on an airplane and go meet each of those people to do that presentation, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it's not going anywhere. I don't think it's effective, though, because, oh, we already knew these people. Uh, there's another case study in the book, uh, a guy named Steve Woodruff. He and I had met on Twitter and, and had built a relationship. And, you know, this is a, maybe even pre-Zoom or early Zoom, yeah, reached out and said, hey, you know, we've never actually met. You're a bourbon drinker. I'm a bourbon drinker. Why don't we have a cocktail together on a Friday afternoon over Zoom <laughs> yeah. or whatever it was? Right. Right. And we did. So, you know, which I kind of laughed in the pandemic when everybody was doing that. I'm like, oh, dude, I've been doing that for 10 years. <laughs> and there was another group of people that we used to, you know, people from around the country. Again, I'd never met face to face that we would uh, other social media folks like myself and, and salespeople. And we would do Google Hangouts back when Google Hangout first came out. And same thing. We'd all have bourbon and we'd just sit and talk and and trade ideas and thoughts. And so, you know, just a bunch of guys hanging out at a bar, except our bar was a, a Google Hangout. And the drinks were cheaper, you know, so it absolutely worked. Yeah. You know, it worked back then. It'll continue to work. It's not going anyway. I do think though, that you're always going to see people want human connectivity face to face. I mean, the human brain is biologically wired for connectivity. It's been proven in, in numerous studies that we are wired to want human touch. We are wired to want to be around other physical beings. Uh, the worst thing you can do to somebody is if you really want to torment them is put them in solitary confinement and take away their connection with other human beings. It'll drive them absolutely batty over time because yeah. our, our brain's right. wired like that. So I don't think that's ever going to go away. I also think we're going to become more and more aware of what's going on, whether this COVID thing keeps going and keeps iterating and we keep getting new variants or whether it's a new novel coronavirus or some other thing, like it's going to be part of the world. I saw the other day that Google was saying that when the Delta variant came out, they saw an increase in searches around the Delta variant and it stayed like it plateaued and people were staying and searching uh, in on an increased level for a couple of months. And when Omicron came out, they saw a spike and then it dropped off almost as quickly as it spiked. And their conclusion was that at least in America, we're becoming more either just tolerant or it's, Hey, this is just the new normal. We're not freaking out maybe as much. I don't know, but it was really, I thought that was really interesting because that's not a very big differential in time from Delta to Omicron, Yeah, but yet they saw a measurable difference in search trending and that people seemed to like get the information and then move on versus Delta. They just kept, you know, you kept seeing a higher level of search. So, and I hope that's how I'm actually going to be speaking at content tech out in San Diego in March, and it'll be the first face-to-face -face conference I've spoken in. And gosh, it'll be almost two years. Right. In fact, I think I have to go back and look. That might have been the last conference I ever spoke at was Content Tech two years ago. And I can't wait. I cannot wait to go stand in front of real people on a real stage and talk and shake hands and hug and all that stuff because it's just exciting. It's fun. It's it's much more energetic. I've done a ton of virtual stuff, but it's fun. But it's there's nothing like stepping off a stage and talking to people and seeing them at the bar afterwards and continuing conversations. Yeah. I mean, there's just an energy there that you can feed off of. You can't get in a virtual world. Yeah. We did a number of virtuals as well during the, the height of the pandemic because, you know, DMOs still have to have an annual meeting if they've had one in the, you know, you want to get that sense of normalcy yeah. and they were fun to do. I learned a lot about tech that I didn't know. You know, we've essentially created a studio here in the office and it's, it's great, but you're right. You know, the first time out, in public was just such a rush and it's so good to be back out there and hopefully we don't uh, pull back because of Omicron. Well, listen, thanks a lot for the intel and I think a different way of looking at things. We can't let you go though before your bonus round question. So <laughs> I'm tempted to ask about your famous half-court basketball shot and maybe you can work that into the answer, but I think I'm more interested in hearing about your turn 
on the Food Network. Oh, my infamous uh, one starring role on the Food Network, <laughs> right? Wow, you're going way back in time. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Heck, that's about 20 years and two kids ago. So uh, Tyler Florence uh, used to have a show on the Food Network. Yep. It was called uh, Food 911. And the premise was that you've tried to cook something. Maybe you've tried to do it multiple times and you've just completely botched it for any number of reasons. And so you would write in and if he picked you, he would come to your home. He would teach you how to cook whatever it is you were trying to cook. Right. And he would show you how to do it and you would cook it together and you would eat it. And right. so that's the show. 30 minute show. Right. Well, they were taping in New Orleans and a woman in our public relations department at the agency I was working at the time, her boyfriend was going to be on the production crew or something. And, you know, Tyler's a good looking guy. And, and so it tended to draw lots of women that would write in and want Tyler to come help them cook. So they really wanted a guy or they wanted more guys. And so all of a sudden she sends an email out, says, hey, they really want guys, anybody that wants to try. So crazy me, I put my name in. The problem is I'm actually a pretty good cook. You know, most people <laughs> tend to think I'm pretty darn good at it. You know, they always joke, you should open up a restaurant if this marketing thing doesn't work out. And, uh, and so I had to make everything up. Yeah. And so I, you know, my wife loves chili rellenos, but the only good meal food you can't get here in New Orleans is Mexican food. And I grew up in Texas, so I, I hate the fact that I can't get really good Mexican. But anyways, so I made up this whole story. My wife's favorite food is chili relleno. I've tried it. It keeps breaking, blah, 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 blah. Well, next thing you know, I get, hey, we like your story. Tyler loves Mexican food. Can you send us a demo? I do a little demo video. My kids, my two kids who are, you know, 24 and 23 now were like, you know, five and four then. They're like biting me on the legs and stuff during the video. It's like total chaos. <laughs> and I'm just trying to complete the video, right? But they love the fact that even though my kids were trying to distract me, I, I kept talking. They're like, this is perfect. This guy, he can do TV. This will be awesome. So long story long, I, they pick me and they come and, and they're you know going to record this session at my house. And so during the course of the thing, he keeps asking me a question. Well, what happened when you did this? And I, the whole time I'm making it up. Because uh, I never tried to cook the dish in my life. Right. And I'm just lying out my pants. You know, I'm just totally just making stuff up and, and the whole bit. And so it was, it was fun. You know, we had a good time. And, and he was trying to use this Tabasco hot sauce. I'm not a huge hot sauce fan. He was trying to put a bunch and I didn't want him to put a bunch. He's making fun of me that I was too, too weak. So then when it came time to put the habaneros in, I'm like putting a bunch in. He's like, well, stop. I'm like, well, you know, you're not man enough. And so then, it was, you know, the final dish was almost. Oh, yeah. Can you top Oh, this? yeah. The final dish was so freaking hot. Thank God we had made margaritas. And because uh, that's the only thing I didn't know how to do. So, yeah. So it was it was hilarious. Yeah, you know, we did it. You know, and then, you know, they tell you ahead of time when it's going to air. So we had this huge viewing party at my in-law's house. And uh, I think since then, I've maybe cooked the dish twice. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it's fun, you know. Yeah. In our streaming world. Can we still find it? Is the episode out there somewhere? No, we've looked for it online and, and we've never been able to find it because this was, gosh, this might have been like 2003, two. Like this is a long, long time yeah, ago. Right. We actually have, believe it or not, a VHS of it. Yeah. And I own a VHS. I still have a VHS machine simply so I can play this one tape. <laughs> you know, and we made the mistake of playing it for our kids one night and they just roasted me from, you know, what I was wearing, how my hair was like, it was hilarious. It was just like, that's great. They were rough. They were really rough. But uh, now I wish they did. They, they don't. You can see the you can see the lucky shot that you can see the Cadillac online. You can find that on YouTube. We do have that uploaded where I shot the ball from half court and I ended up winning a Cadillac Escalade. That is online. So but, cool. Uh, you know, can't yeah. get the Tyler Florence. I'll have to look for that. I'll send you a link. I'll send you a link. You can go see it. It's actually pretty funny because uh, what most people don't know about that story is I was just completely hammered. 
I'd been at a fair all day drinking <laughs> with my six foot eight best friend right. and uh, going one to one. And was most people didn't think I'd ever get the ball to the hoop, much less in the hoop. So uh, that was pretty funny. They tried to give me the keys. I was like, no, nah, I don't need to win it and lose it in the same night. Y'all can keep that. I'll pick it up tomorrow. Uh, it's pretty funny. <laughs> That's great. Hey, Tom, thank you so much for being a friend over the years. And thanks for challenging the status quo when it comes to our approach to selling. I got to tell you, and I've told you before, reading The Invisible Sale absolutely provided a breakthrough view in the way I approached the sales process, both for my clients and, and personally. And I continue to follow your email communiques. So before we go, tell us where people who are hungry for more can find you. Oh, well, thank you for, for that. That's an incredibly gracious comment that you just made, especially coming from you. Best place to find us is just go to conversedigital.com. You can sign up to get our weekly blogs and emails that we send out and so forth. Or you can grab a copy of the book at Amazon or even on our site. Uh, we offer, I think, an autographed version if you want that. If you feel like you have an autographed version, we'll send you that. Good old-fashioned hard one, not a Kindle. Cool. Watch. I tend to speak at a lot of conferences around the world. Or if it's a DMO who needs yeah. a speaker, call me. I'll come speak. Yeah. And be sure to uh, sign up for the newsletter because um, we get something every time. So I'm glad to hear that. You're, you're a gracious individual. Thank you. Not at all. We love the way you think, and that's why we wanted to have you on the show. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and your peers this is where the best and the brightest get together to tell inspiring stories for DMO professionals. Thanks, too, to our sponsor, Searchwide Global, the premier executive search firm in the DMO space. Mike Gamble and his team uncover the talent out there that isn't looking, meaning that clients get a far richer candidate pool from which to choose than just placing ads in pubs and online. You want more? You can find them at searchwideglobal.com. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find more on our services to the DMO world, our book, Destination Leadership, plus links to the Z News, our Knowledge Bank, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to earlier episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time. <laughs>